into the hands of his heavenly father. Soldiers come along and they see that he has expired. <clears throat> they don't break his legs as they were going to as they did for the other two criminals but they take a spear, a very long spear and shove that into his chest cavity and blood and water comes out and and then we read this from Luke, uh, John chapter 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, or about 30-something, 32 to 34 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the term was nearby, they laid Jesus there. There, let me pray and then we'll read a bit more in a minute. Heavenly Father, we gather together today in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord and our Saviour, the one who died but is now risen, who is not only at the right hand your right hand, but has sent his spirit to indwell all believers, present with us until the end of the age. We thank you for your presence, for your scriptures, and we ask that your spirit might enlighten us, remind us not only of this incredibly wonderful story, but open our eyes to see new truths and new applications that we might follow Jesus passionately that on this Sunday we are saying, Lord Jesus, thank you and we love you. So speak to us now, we pray, in your name. Amen. This morning we're going to work our way through John chapter 20, but before I get to that, I just wanted to make clear and to remind you of something which is an historical fact, that Jesus definitely died and he was most certainly buried. For there are people <clears throat> who want to deny the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and they deny the reality of the resurrection by changing the fact that he died. They came up with, there are five different theories of, well he didn't in fact really die. And we're not going to look at those this morning but if you want to read about those or talk about those you can certainly come and do that. None of them take all of the evidence into account, they are all selective and they're all driven by a desire to want to deny the resurrection. Well, Jesus certainly, definitely died. It was verified by professional executioners, the Romans, who didn't break his legs but who did thrust the spear in and who testified that blood and water came out. Verified by professional executioners, buried by friends, Joseph and Nicodemus. It's inconceivable that he was not dead. If there was any movement of his chest cavity, any breath in that body, they wouldn't have buried him. They would have rushed him off for medical treatment. Buried by friends. 
And we're not sure exactly of the Jewish burial customs. There are a couple of different ideas. The way the Bible is translated, the NIV is translated for us, it seems that there were like strips of linen. It's like the Egyptian mummification process of wrapping it around and around and adding spices or, or ointments and perfumes there. Something like that. But an awful lot of them. Why was it Joseph who came to get Jesus? because the Romans would not have released the body of a family member to any other member of the family who was accused of sedition. Normally they would have taken the body of an accused criminal like Jesus was and they would have simply have placing it in the cemetery outside the city or even into Gehenna itself into the rubbish tip for some sort of cremation process. Why did Pilate grant Joseph the request? Probably to infuriate the Jews at least giving Jesus an honourable burial. And Joseph, by the way, in coming to get Jesus, comes out of secrecy. And so too for Nicodemus. They would have disqualified themselves from further participation in the Jewish festival of the unleavened bread, which was to go for another week, as well as they alienated themselves from their friends and probably family members who was still part of the Sanhedrin. There was a lot of spices, 32 kilograms, 34 kilograms. That was sunset on Friday. But you know the story. By the very early hours of this day, Easter Sunday. Why is it called Easter? Well, just very simply, what's in the East? Easter, the Germans pronounce it. It's the sun rising. Well, that's an appropriate name then, isn't it? The rising sun, Easter. I know some of you may have fears that, you know, hangover from pagan practices or some other worship processes. Many, in fact, of our customs in our culture do have different roots and origins, but this is definitely a Christian celebration. Easter is where we remember the resurrection of the Son of God himself. Let me read to you the first ten verses of John chapter 20. Follow me in whatever device you have with you. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as, well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. It's interesting, isn't it? There are three paragraphs in this John chapter 20 and this is the first one. That on Sunday morning the tomb was definitely empty. The women discover that the body is gone and two disciples go to investigate and observe the ordered grave clothes that are still there. There are things that John does not tell us in his Gospel and in fact at the end of the Gospel he tells us that Jesus did many other things as well. If I wrote all of those down, (coughs) if they're all written down, then not even the world could contain the books that were there. John chapter 21 verse 25. So John has deliberately selected some of the He doesn't tell us about the earthquake and the angel rolling the stone away. Who moved the stone? God did. Why was the stone rolled away? It didn't need to be rolled for Jesus to get out. It was rolled away so that we could go in and see and believe. He passed through the grave clothes. He passed through the tomb itself. As later on in this story, he will pass through closed doors, through walls. John doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't mention the guard fleeing. He doesn't even mention the other women who also encountered the angels and the Lord Jesus. He alludes to it when he has Mary saying, um, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, we, the other ladies who are with me, we don't know where they have placed him. So what does John tell us? Well, he tells us this. He focuses upon Mary Magdalene within herself the tomb that it's dark can I use one of these microphones just grab one turn that one off so early it's dark when she gets there she observes they were discussing on the way another gospel writer tells us about how we're going to move that big stone Josh McDowell, with some engineers from some Caltech, go, had been to Israel and they have calculated that given the stone that is used in Israel, the size of this stone was about one and a half to two tons, was in a track, was rolled. And the ladies are wondering, how are we going to move it? When they get there, John doesn't say the stone was rolled back. He said it was removed from the tomb. Someone had lifted this large stone up and carried it, through it, whatever, away from the tomb. That's the picture. And Matthew tells us in 28, it was in fact an angel, it was the angel of the Lord, who came and got the stone, threw it away and then sat on it and scared the heck out of the Roman soldiers, which is why they ran away. Mary comes and what she observes is this stone has been rolled away. She has a quick look inside She sees some of the grave clothes there, I would expect. She sees nobody and she knows he's gone. She panics and she thinks the worst. They're not expecting the resurrection. They came to finish the burial process that had been hurried up on the day of preparation on Friday evening. They came to complete the job, but the body was gone. Who took him? Those rotten authorities. They've taken the body to humiliate him. What went through her mind? We aren't told. We are simply told that she ran to the lead apostles, Peter and John, wherever they were staying. And when she gets there, she instructs them, they have taken him and we don't know where he is. 
verses 3 and 4, Peter and John get up. And John, well, I think it's John. Technically, it's the disciple who is unnamed, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And people say, John writes like that about himself because he's being humble. He doesn't even want to name himself. And that may very well be the case. Except if you read this passage, he does go out of his way to point out twice that he ran faster than Peter. (laughs) Just putting that out there. Just forever, you know, recorded for all time. This disciple outran Peter. When John gets to the tomb, because he was there first, he has a quick, the scripture says, he has a quick glimpse inside. He has a peek. But he doesn't go in. He probably doesn't go in because he doesn't want to disqualify himself by touching under dead body or a tomb. Um, and he wants to enjoy maybe the rest of the unleavened feast or something like that. Maybe that's why he didn't go in. Maybe he didn't want to uh, violate or desecrate the sanctity of this tomb because it was the tomb of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> he glimpses. And you're left to wonder what did he actually see. Peter eventually arrives. We're not told how much later. John's standing outside. When Peter gets there, he barges straight in, verses 6 and 7. he wants to know what the situation is exactly and when he goes inside the word that John uses is that he has a very careful look he scrutinises, he examines the situation he's the investigator at a crime scene Rhonda and I enjoy watching movies and some TV shows and particularly crime ones we love the Sherlock Holmes movies. Well, Peter is like Sherlock Holmes a bit. He's examining and he's putting stuff together, trying to at least. He's the Brenda Lee Johnson of Closer. He's the Matt out of CSI New York. He's Gibbs from MCIS. He's Beckett out of Castle. He's Booth out of Bones. And we could go on and on. He examines. What does he see? Well, the body's gone. But John, and John is the only gospel writer who does it, and he does it intentionally. He refers to these grave clothes as still there. Mary thought robbers had come. Someone has come and taken the body. If not robbers, then perhaps the Roman authorities or whatever. Someone has taken the body. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. The Lord bless you. One caring person in the whole church. (laughs) That's not true, is it? What does he see? He sees the linen cloth. This is surmising. But my guess is um, that when they had wrapped the Lord Jesus, we don't have all of the details of the Jewish burial customs of the first century. We have some and we don't have enough to be dogmatic or overly strong in our opinions. But my opinion is, when they wrapped and they're adding the myrrhs and the aloes and both the ointments and the perfumes and it's designed to both absorb moisture but also to give off a pleasant odour to decrease the unpleasant odour of the body decaying. But this forms some sort of 
you know, mesh, it becomes solid. Now I don't know that, but I imagine that. And so that when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he doesn't get up and unwrap that so that they're unwrapped and all in a pile on the floor. It's rather his body disappears, it vaporises it, poof, it's gone. And now there's nothing to hold up the weight of the linen strips and so they have simply collapsed. And that's something like what Peter is now observing, examining. And there's something else that he notices. We do know this, that the the Jews would uh, wrap until about the shoulders. And then there was a separate face covering, head covering, and there are different sorts. Uh, Some people say it was like just a napkin over the face. Other people say it was like uh, a a strip that was wrapped around the head and underneath the jaw to tie it together, keep the mouth closed. Others say it was like a turban round around the head. However it went, this facial wrapping, this napkin or whatever it was, this bit that was separate to the others, is now folded, either rolled up again or folded neatly and separated from the other bits of the linen. Which led me a couple of years ago asking, what does that mean? And I got some emails from people and there's a really (coughs) beautiful devotional thought but I don't know how strong or accurate it is that when Jesus left these grave clothes behind, he left them for a reason. And that the folded napkin was a way of communicating, I'm not finished, I'll be back. That it was a custom and someone from upper classes of society like where probably John was from, not Peter, because they were from different socio-classes. John may have understood that, but Peter certainly didn't that Jesus was communicating by folding the cloth. Somebody folded it. If not Jesus, then who? And what did it mean? Something is done in a very orderly manner. It's not grave robbers that have taken the body of the Lord Jesus because who takes a body out of the clothes and leaves the clothes and takes the body? Robbers certainly don't do that. I wonder if Peter then says something. He often did. Something caused John to come inside, verse 8. He now enters the tomb. And there's a different word used again and this time it says that he perceived, he looked and he perceived with understanding. He saw the evidence and it says in verse, is it verse 8? He believed. He believed what? Well, there are two views. One, he believed Mary, that what she had said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb or we don't know where they have put him and he saw the grave clothes there and he concluded, yep, they have, they've taken him. Is that what he believed? Well, that's not the way John normally uses this word, believed. And it's more likely that he is indicating I was not only first to the tomb. I outran you know who. But I'm also the first one to believe. He saw and believed. 
We aren't told exactly Peter's response, but if you go back to Luke chapter 24 and verse 12, it says that Peter got up, ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter didn't get it. He saw, but he hadn't put the pieces together yet. But John is telling us he did, that he saw and he believed and then both of them returned to the place where they were staying. Why did Jesus leave the grave clothes? Because I think he wants us to understand the evidence. He wants us to know that he folded the napkin. He's communicating something. He left the grave clothes undisturbed as evidence for us who did not see and who were not there but to put the evidence together to draw the correct conclusion. I think the Lord Jesus folded the napkin. Leon Morris tells the story of a housekeeper, house owner, who owned a really pleasant house by the seaside, about half a mile from the water. It was this person's practice to go down to the beach and to pick up seaweed and to use that as fertiliser in his garden. And it used to work really well because he had a magnificent garden. Over the course of time it came time for him, he had to move, had to sell up, put the house on the market and to his great surprise he never got one bite, nobody, not one expression of interest. He thought that was strange, nice house, beautiful garden, close to the sea, immaculate views, so he put it on auction. And that's when he discovered the reason why he never got one bid when the house was up for sale. Because one of the people who came to the auction came to him, they pointed to the seaweed and they said, how often does the tide come in this far? (laughs) The evidence? Seaweed. The conclusion? Wrong. You see the evidence in the tomb? Nobody. He was definitely dead on Friday, buried by six o'clock. The tomb, the body was gone Sunday morning, very early Sunday morning. But the grave clothes are still there. And the stone is not just rolled back, the stone is moved away. That's the evidence. What's the conclusion that we are to draw? Well, John goes on and he selects three appearances. Out of all of the things that happened on this particular day, he intentionally gives us three. I think he has picked these three stories because there is a truth that he wants us to get. Let's read them. John chapter 20, and this is from verse 11. Ah, We'll read all of them. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she sees two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, 
She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him, cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says, Stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, uh, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, that Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom Alakim, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord and again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom, Alakim. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John picks three appearances. The first one is to Mary Magdalene. She is lingering at the tomb. She is deeply grieving. She pops her head into the tomb and she sees two angels who speak to her and she turns and meets the risen Lord. She grabs hold of him tightly, embraces him firmly, but is sent by him to tell the disciples. Notice this theme. Those who come to believe that Jesus died and rose are sent to tell others. Those who believe that Jesus died and rose are sent to tell others. Once again, John has been selective. He doesn't tell us about the other women and other things that have happened. When Mary looks into the tomb, she sees two angels one on this end of the bench and one on the other end and it's a reminder, it reminds me of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that that's where God would meet with in the Ark, in the Old Testament, with his people now in the resurrection of Jesus this is where God meets with his people through the person of Jesus this is one of the very few instances where someone encounters an angel and they're not scared, they're not afraid Mary's not she's so 
focused on her loss. Such is this lady's devotion towards the Lord Jesus. She simply answers them. This is why I'm weeping, why I'm crying. And then Chrysostom, early preacher, 4th century, he says probably the angels either pointed or, you know, indicated, which causes her to turn ahead and she turns to see it's Jesus but she doesn't know it's him. And so she asks him a question. She thinks he's the gardener. And again, she's not rational but she's just in love with Jesus. She says, have you taken him away? You tell me where you've taken him and I'll go get him. How is she going to go get him? She's not thinking that through. She's just desperate. She's just devoted. She just wants to honour her Lord. He simply says her name, Miriam, Mary. And she responds as undoubtedly she had on numerous other occasions in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. The Lord Jesus knows her name, just like he knows ours. She goes towards him. She embraces him. And then there is this statement, it's not stop touching me because the other women had done the same. They had grabbed him and hugged him and worshipped him and in fact he's going to invite Thomas later on, a week later, to come and touch him. So it's not don't touch me, it's rather it's nice that you're hugging me but there's no need for you to grab so tightly. I haven't yet ascended to the Father, there is still time. We're still going to have some time together, I think is what Jesus is saying. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. So don't hold so tight. There'll be some other opportunities. And she believes, obviously, and now she is likewise sent. Go tell my brothers. It's interesting. The Lord Jesus calls his disciples his brothers. Go tell my brothers. I'm going to return to the Father. And she does. She goes, she finds them and she tells them. Such is her devotion to him and her obedience to him. When they hear it, initially they don't believe it. They think she is loopy. But the evidence is starting to pile up. And so that night, this is now, if you add it all up, this is now the fifth occasion, but in John this is the second example. The disciples are together in a room. We don't know where the room is. We don't know if it's the upper room. We aren't told. But they likewise are going to see, hear the risen Lord Jesus and they are going to be sent to tell others. The doors are locked. And in the midst of this secure environment, the Lord Jesus suddenly materialises in their midst and he comes towards them and he speaks peace to them. Shalom, Alakim. Shalom is not just peace, but it's also blessing. Peace. Shows them his hands and his side. and The process of speaking to him and them coming to faith based upon the evidence of what they are seeing and hearing, he then commissions them. It's interesting that all four Gospels, and including the book of Acts, When they talk about the resurrection, they then go on to talk about the Great Commission. The resurrection always leads to an evangelistic thrust, go and tell others. In this passage that John is telling us, the Lord Jesus breathed on them and said, you'll need two resources. Number one, you'll need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And he exhales over them deeply. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. 
and he says you will also need the truth of the gospel so that if people accept the truth of the gospel then they will be forgiven and you can declare them forgiven. If they reject the truth of the gospel then they will not be forgiven and you can communicate that to them. It's not that Jesus is empowering clerics or people to be able to, you're forgiven, you're not, but rather on the basis of your response to the offer of God's sacrifice to the person of Jesus. If you accept it, God forgives you, as he promised. If you reject it, you are still in your sins. Jesus commissions them. It's interesting, isn't it, for all these Gospels lead to the telling of the Great Commission. So before we go to the third story, what's your strategy? If you've come to believe and understand that Jesus died, that he rose, then you like Mary and you like the twelve, the ten apostles here, you likewise have been sent. What's your strategy? What mechanism, what means, how do you carry the gospel? How are you obedient to this? D.L. Moody tells a story one time. He was an evangelist back in the 1800s, perhaps early 1900s. He was criticised by another brother, another Christian, who said that they didn't much care for his evangelistic methods. Moody, having been criticised, said, well, I'm always wanting to improve. Tell me, what's your approach? Oh, I don't have an approach. He said, Moody replies, "Uh, well, then I'll stick with mine, as imperfect as it is. What's your approach? What's your plan of attack? How are you being obedient to this, being sent by the risen Lord Jesus? So the reality is that for many of us, We may not have a strategy. Maybe even in the last six months, maybe longer, you've not even shared the gospel with anyone. It's not that you just didn't have an opportunity, there's no desire to do so. Well, this is a great tragedy. He sent us. So we need to be alert. We need to be equipped. Paul Rader makes the comment. He says, Christians are like a whole lot of people with colds all sitting around sneezing at each other but nobody gets it because everybody's got it. Us four, no more, shut the door. And that's how we live. Not focused upon being obedient to the commission of the Lord Jesus, upon his heart's desire that others might hear, but rather just being comfortable. What's your strategy? Well, Pastor David has invited us to attend a course, the Alpha course. There's an option. Ten weeks, Tuesday nights, let him know. Come. Well, I am a Christian. Well, that's okay. Come and it'll equip you. Find out what it's really like. And then if it's suitable in your estimation, we think it is, then uh, take the risk and invite a non-Christian friend or family member or loved one. Perhaps you're married to an unbeliever. Well, invite them and come with them and bring some other couples who are friends with them and make it a safe place to come. Can't afford 10 weeks, Tuesday nights? Buy the book. Learn about. Equip yourself. Find another way. It doesn't have to be the Alpha Course. It might be some other way. But come up with a strategy to be obedient. Those who believe that Jesus died and rose have been sent to tell others. Now here comes the climax, the third story that John tells us and no other gospel writer tells us. I think Thomas is misnamed. 
I don't think he is doubting Thomas. I think he's more honest Thomas. Or if you like, you can even call him hesitant. But I think he's just stubborn. And I think John tells us this story because sometimes in the process of us telling others the gospel of the Lord Jesus, outlining for them the evidence, we will encounter people like Thomas who are realistic. Dead people don't rise again. And so Thomas says very clearly, with all of them telling him, we've seen the Lord, he doesn't believe the combined testimony of all of them, doesn't believe the evidence, he can't put it together, he just doesn't believe it. Well, what do you do with people like that? Well, you leave it to the Lord. Let him deal with it. That's what happens here. So a week later, on the evening and first day of the week, Eight days later, the following Sunday, the Lord Jesus is very gracious because he almost recreates exactly the same scene. The story that he has been hearing, the doors were shut and he just appeared, is what is repeated. The doors are shut and he just appeared. And he said, peace to you. And when he comes this time, he says, peace to you. And then he eyeballs Thomas and he invites him specifically, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. See, he heard every word. He knows. And he invites Thomas and he challenges him, no longer be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas gives the climactic statement in the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. That's who Jesus is. He is Lord and God. And Thomas says it. He puts it together because he's seen, because he's heard. We're not told that he actually touched, but maybe he did. And then Jesus makes this very strong statement that John records for us, verse 29. Jesus says, because you have seen, you believe. Well, that's good that you believe. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. See, all of these people, how did Mary believe? She saw the Lord, she heard and she touched him. How did the disciples believe? They saw the Lord, they heard and they examined the mark. How did Thomas believe? He saw and he heard. They all saw, heard, perhaps touched. And we go, oh, I wish we could see and hear and touch. And Jesus is going, doesn't work like that. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's us. That's why John has written these stories. So what do you do with stubborn people, with people who refuse to respond to the evidence, who don't put it together? Let Jesus deal with them. Let Jesus appear. Let Jesus convict. Let Jesus draw them to himself. Don't stress. Don't argue. Don't become ungracious or difficult or quarrel with them. Ray Comfort wrote a very cheeky, wrote a book, great book, cheeky title. He said, you can lead an atheist to evidence, but you can't make him think. It's cheeky in its title, isn't it? What's the application for all of this? John's summary is verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples who are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name.
That's what my science teacher did to me. Back in 1972. I was in year 11 at high school. My life had, was falling apart slowly. Personal crises and difficulties. And met a Christian by the name of Malcolm Anderson, who's in Melbourne now. And I didn't know anything, and I mean anything, about Jesus, the Bible or the Gospel. And I didn't even know what a Christian was. Malcolm takes me to Barry de Salvia, my science teacher. And I said to Barry, you're a scientist and you believe? He chatted with me. He then challenged me. He said, get the Gospel of John. Over the next couple of weeks, just read the Gospel of John. And in the process of reading it, write down any question you've got. Write down anything. I don't believe that. Jesus turned water into wine. Lazarus rising from the dead. I wrote my questions down. I would go back to him over several weeks and I would ask the question and he would answer it. I would ask the question and he would answer it. He did that all the way through. Until one day in January, school holidays by myself, the light went on. Blink. Jesus dealt with me. Jesus opened my eyes to see through the Gospel of John. Exactly the reason why he wrote it. Perhaps you're here this Easter Sunday and you're still trying to put the evidence together. You're here because of a family member has invited you or you've come out of curiosity and we're glad you did. But the Lord has you here because he wants your attention. If you don't have a Bible, then we would like to give you one just like this. We have about 10 of those available. If you'd like to come and get, it's just the New Testament but it certainly includes the passage that we just looked at this morning. And I invite you, we'll give that to you and invite you to read it, just like my science teacher did with me. And then let's just talk it through. Maybe you are a believer and you don't have a strategy. You've heard this story before, before, before. You know it all. But you haven't worked out a strategy yet for how to tell others and you're scared about it. Well, the Lord knows that too. And he wants to equip you. You have the spirit. You have the gospel. Ask him for courage and for opportunity. Just to be yourself. Just to be an honest witness. Two more things to say and then I'm going to pray. Firstly, in terms of encouragement, I think it's significant that the Lord Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Why is that significant? Well, one, she's a woman. Not being sexist, but back in the first century, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in court. That's just a historical situation. And yet Jesus intentionally appears to the women first. And then of the women that he appeared to, you would think that he would pick women who were of outstanding character, like his mum, Mary. Or maybe Mary of Bethany, who days before had anointed him with oil, Palm Sunday. But no, he doesn't. He picks Mary Magdalene to be the first 
a lady with a shady past. Luke tells us that she was demonised, that he had cast out of her seven demons. The fact that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first, I think is a ray of hope, a light shining in a dark valley for every person who struggles with sin or who has guilt. If the Lord Jesus rescued this ordinary, insignificant person, saved her from her life of sin, chose her to be the first witness of the resurrection, then he can do it again in our life. He can save us from our sin and he can use us like he used her to witness to others. The scripture certainly teaches that. Finally, Jesus definitely died and was certainly buried on Friday. The tomb was empty, vacant and undisturbed Sunday morning. There are three appearances that John tells us about. Mary, who loved him. The ten disciples, who expressed hope in him. And Thomas, who came to faith. Love, hope, faith. These three appearances certainly validate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They are the setting for the commissioning of the disciples, go and tell others. And they are the background to the great confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. I invite you to bear with me and I will pray. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful day when we are reminded, when we remember that Jesus Christ rose, he's back, that he folded the napkin to indicate, I'm coming back, that he appeared to Mary, demonstrating love but also acceptance, that he appeared to the disciples and he empowered them by his spirit and with the gospel that he came to stubborn Thomas to encourage belief. So Lord Jesus even so come to us not just in our heads but into our hearts and spirits into our hands. Fill us motivate us, use us open our eyes to see the opportunities to see the harvest around us. We ask Lord Jesus that you might be alive in us. We thank you Heavenly Father that we've had this opportunity to look at this story again. We acknowledge that we need you in our life and we invite you. Come, take control. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The team is just going to present to you a, a song that we've um, come across and learned. It's a relatively new song. It was sung by Chris Tomlin, and the song's name is called All For Us, All To Us. And it's talk about our Lord Jesus uh, being who he is, what he's done for us, 
and that's everything that we really need. So we're going to ask you to remain seated while we uh, sing this song for you.
pray.